0: Light a campfire, and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats.
1: Welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasia, and today I'm speaking to Joss Kent, and Beyond CEO. Joss will be speaking about the magic that happens when profit meets purpose in business. Joss, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us. You'll be speaking a little bit today about when purpose meets profit in a dark alley. Thanks for coming to, to talk about that topic.
0: It's a, it's a chunky, interesting topic, so hopefully it'll be a good session.
1: Absolutely, and quite an intriguing one. Joss, I'd like to start off when you first became CEO of N Beyond. I think it's eight years ago now, and you know, some of the background thinking that went into your choice of N Beyond. At the time, you pretty much could have had your pick of any number of positions, and yet you chose to become part of N Beyond and headed up. What was it about the company that made you choose them at the time?
0: I think at the time, to be honest, I was quite intrigued at how such a company with such a great reputation over so many years since the establishment of Conservation Corporation and such great lodge locations and such a sort of rich conservation history could be in such trouble operationally, financially. It just didn't stack up to me. I was like, how, how did it get to this place? Because there's got to be there's got to be more to this story than, than what I'm seeing from a distance. It was also fundamentally the challenge of establishing the first sustainably mm. profitable full impact organisation, because I'd read a lot about NGO-based mm-hmm. uh, organisations. We had, in, in previous roles, I'd tried to edge in this direction, you know, in terms of conservation community development. But you always seem to bump into this divisive wall. Are you a for-profit organisation or... A non for profit organization. And I was always of the view that they were not mutually exclusive things or answers. And in AmBeyond, I, I saw the possibility that one could prove that they belong in the same place if done well together. And then the, the final one is to be frank, I, I really liked the shareholders when I met them, mm-hmm. which was really important to me. I really felt they were people who were genuine about their intent to do what they wanted to do with AmBeyond. And I, I really like their ethics. I like their personalities. And I, I felt that they were people I could really work with.
1: Wonderful. And that all creates a really great background to coming into a position. Yeah. Joss, obviously, you know, coming into any new company, especially a CEO, you, you need to do a review and kind of find things that are happening in the company. And you must have found some things that you felt beyond was really doing very well and others that they weren't doing quite as well as they should be. Can you talk a little bit about what those were?
0: Certainly. The philosophy was great. The guest experience and hospitality delivery was great. The guiding was absolutely world-class and the guide training was absolutely world-class. However, the commercial focus and decision-making and disciplines that sat behind it to try and balance the great with the bad, and by the bad, I mean those are just the normal things any business has to contend with. They were awful. There was no concrete cohesive long-term strategy in place it was fight fire to fire to fire to fire which is very very difficult for a very volatile business as as a conservation sort of lodge business already is and again there was to use an American sort of term there was very much sort of drink the kool-aid mentality and by that I mean really not understanding where the dollars or rand or Kenya shillings or Tanzania shillings really needed to be spent in the right place to generate proper returns to then reinvest into the care of the land, wildlife and people. There was a full disconnect between the two. And so what happens is when you don't have those disciplines and it's not framed within a a very tight strategy, you end up making some really bad decisions and there's no controls over it. And once that happens, things spiral out of control quite quickly. And I think that's really what had happened in the prior years to me arriving at Ambion. So yeah, so it links back to my first answer. I was intrigued because I was like, how could it be? And then I found out, okay, this is something I can fix. Mm -hmm.
1: So basically, you're talking about a business that had a strong foundation and vision and the best intentions in the world, but not enough questioning of the way to go about to achieving that.
0: Yeah. And I think just the reality is that it's all very well saying, let's come up with a a grand strategy. The strategy has to be based on fundamentals. So what we said about doing was building that strategy from the bottom up. You know, what is actually possible? How do you make this thing profitable? What is that balance between profit and purpose in a dark alley? Can you actually achieve it? What money is it going to take? What kind of returns on that money you're going to get? What does it mean for neighboring communities? What does it actually mean for the 2,000 plus plus beyond staff? That's the nitty-gritty detail. And while there was immense detail on the hospitality side of the business, on, on the fundamentals of where you're trying to go and how you're going to get there, there wasn't.
1: Mm, absolutely. Was there something that really surprised you when you joined in Beyond?
0: Yes. I was based in London at the time when I was talking to the, to the shareholders. And they sent me a whole bunch of information in boxes. And I spent three weeks looking through these boxes of information mm-hmm. and increasingly sort of scratched my head and said, wow, <laughs> this is a challenge. But I finally said, you know what, I, I just need to get on a plane and I need to go out and see some of this to try and piece it all together. And what really surprised me was when I got onto the ground, not, not just the, the sort of lodge locations and things, but it was the people. Yes. I think we've still got it. And it's the ambient teams and people seems just so invested and so committed and so passionate to what they were doing, but they are also really warm and really authentic in a way that's very difficult to put your finger on. And I left going, what what was that? Where did that come from? And that's gold dust, because that's the core DNA of the company. That's where the care of the people really shone through to me and it was immensely strong much stronger than in any other organization i would come across so i left now really energized and and intrigued because i was like you know if i can just hold on to that and fix the things that i know is in my realm of, of expertise to fix and you can piece those together you know the fundamentals of any organization is is people and in Ambient uh the, the people were the real surprise
1: that's wonderful to hear Just so you spoke about going to actually see for yourself and, you know, feel out the company. What were some of the first steps that you took as CEO? And are there things that you would recommend to somebody who's who's stepping into that kind of position?
0: Yes, I'd say even if it's a business that you think you know well, and certainly if it's one that you don't know well, you absolutely have to do your homework properly in the field before you decide your plan of action. Field Marshal Rommel, had a great saying from the Second World War, which was time spent in reconnaissance is seldom wasted. And never has a truer word been been said. And that's very different from looking at boxes of papers in some boardroom or, you know, going to a regional office and spending a day with the team there. I'd already signed up to the, to the job. But before I could present back to the shareholders a, a proper plan, mm-hmm. I flew the whole length and breadth of Ambiod. I looked at every building. I looked at every lodge. I talked to as many people as I could mm-hmm. and not necessarily those in, in their quarters. They're actually the least interesting to me. What interested me is what the, the head housekeeper in Tanzania was saying about how her job was done, yeah. what her challenges were, or the, the guides mm-hmm. and rangers, whether it's in South Africa or Kenya or Botswana, what was actually going on on their vehicle. Did the vehicles work? Mm-hmm. Were they trained? Did they have the right equipment? And it's sitting... Mm-hmm. It's the conversations with staff under a mango tree that are the ones that really drive the strategy, not the ones that sit in a white painted headquarters. And so my hard advice would be, don't believe what you're told to start with. Go and find out for yourself and, and just do a lot of listening. Mm-hmm. So for me, I listened a lot. I think it took three or four months and it was pretty hectic. And I listened a lot and I aggregated a whole bunch of information. Mm-hmm. I then checked it against what I thought the strategy was going to be. And lo and behold, there were lots of places where it was not correct. And I had to go back, but you learn that a little bit the hard way. And I guess when you get a bit more experience is, is mm. one tends to think that one doesn't have to do that in field homework. But I'd highly recommend it.
1: Mm. Absolutely. Now, just a little bit earlier, you mentioned care of the people, and End Beyond's always had that concept of the three C's: care of the land, care of the wildlife, and care of the people. You've really put a lot of work into defining that and creating a very specific impact model for the business. Can you describe what this is and how it differs from the traditional concept of corporate social responsibility?
0: Yes. The other surprise I had out of reviewing everything when I arrived, back to one of your earlier questions, when I said the philosophy was great and strong, it was. And actually, the model that had been set up in theory was correct. And that was this Mm three-legged stool of care of the land, care of the wildlife, and care of the people, with Anne beyond sitting at the center with the guest experience and revenue paying Mm -hmm. for all of that. So that was not incorrect. And actually, when I looked at the mission statement, when I came back, I I just remember sitting in a boardroom with the shareholders and they said, but this is the same mission statement we had before. You haven't changed it. I said, no, I haven't. It's correct. Mm -hmm. Just the, the execution against it is incorrect. Ironically, after all of that, from a mission statement perspective, we actually went right back to the start of Ambient. We kept going with the same mission just done in a different way. The model is, is really that, is mm. you have your biosphere ecosystem impact piece, which is care of the land. You've mm-hmm. got your, yes. your wildlife management, habitat management, trying to reverse local extinctions where possible of endangered species, care of the wildlife, and then care of the people bridges across mm-hmm. all Ambion em- employees into the communities because for most of the time, they're one and the same thing. And therefore, what's the need of the community is actually the need of, of the Ambion team. Wherever they are, the bit in the middle needed a lot of work. You've got to pay for this stuff; it's not cheap, and you need full lodges at the right rate. You need enough lodges, and we needed to find new ways in order to earn enough revenue to pay for that three-legged stool. So that was the model's construct, and then we started to build against that. And the the reason it's different from a normal CSR type concept or structure is, for most companies, the CSR plan is an Mm add-on. You're selling refrigerators yes cars insurance and then on the side you have well we've got to do the csr thing and therefore you have a csr team who try and lock in and integrate and there's all this very big corporate speak (laughs) and you've got chief of chief of this and chief of that and they're trying to penetrate the core of the business to to build it in with lots of great intent i guess in and beyond what i inherited was very valuable it was already fully embedded in the DNA. So that links back to my earlier point on core DNA. It's already in the structure of the business and the strategy of the business. It's not something separate. But we had a difference in this had to be a totally for-profit venture, but reinventing how you do that to then support the CSR legs of care of the land wildlife and people that sit around the core guest experience and revenue generation. So I, I hope that makes sense.
1: I think so. So going back to the topic of this talk, the purpose was there, but the profit wasn't.
0: Correct. But also the where you get that profit is, is derived from revenue. And the company has spent 20 years scratching its head as to how you get enough revenue to get mm-hmm. enough profit to pay for everything. And so obviously all of the touring side of the business and the DMC side of the business is, is where we really got stuck in. Uh, and that was because in my view... Yeah. It it speaks to the CSR structure. If you're really going to try and leave the world a better place and educate people about what's going on, we have the perfect platform to do it. We've got hundreds, if not thousands, of guests in our lodges every day. That is a a live university Petri dish. And if you don't make the most of it, then shame on us. And within there, there's revenue, because they're looking for the experiences it wants Mm -hmm. to do. Um, And within the revenue is the profit to pay for it all. So we rapidly expanded all of the touring and the DMC side of the the business in order to kind of fill Mm. that revenue gap.
1: Absolutely. Before we get more in depth into the topic of profit, there's one other definition that I'd like to talk about. And something that I've heard you speak about very often is the concept of shared value. And that kind of, to me, that underlines the whole impact model as well. Could you define what this means in the context of the NBON business?
0: Yes. If you're truly trying to be sustainable, and that is not a 3-, 5-, 10-year kind of sustainability impact plan, that's, that's a 100-year that's a plan, then there has to be shared value with the stakeholders who are most at risk from what you do or could benefit the most from what you do outside of the normal, very commercial corporate structure or capitalist structure of shareholder return. And in that regard, I think Ambion was ahead of its time. I think since COVID has hit a lot of the world and big corporate boardrooms are moving heavily in our direction and breaking down that there has to be more than just shareholder return. You've got to have shared value in the, in the communities, shared value in the economics of what you do, etc. So in, in the frame of Ambion, the shared value applies to five different things. Shared value is local employment, very local employment. I believe we're now above 70% local employment across beyond. It involves local procurement, buying as much as you can locally. We put a perimeter, usually about 50 kilometers around each reserve lodge as our defining perimeter as to where we can buy. In some cases, you've got to go further. But for instance, if you're in the Mara and the Maasai community are not in the Mara, but they're in Nairobi, and they're selling the eggs that you want to buy, then you link the community back to Nairobi and you buy eggs from the Maasai community, not from a wholesale supermarket. So it, you have to think quite laterally on local procurement. There's local social infrastructure development, and that's where all the clinics and the schools and everything you can see coming through, whether it's through Ambion or the Africa Foundation, sits in that bucket of sort of local social infrastructure development. There's local small business development and the sort of hustle economy, which is... It's, it's linked to local procurement, but it's actually mm-hmm. trying to train and bring on the next generation of local entrepreneurs yeah. from the communities and helping them to do that. So we, we're getting actively involved in that. And then finally, there's the local training and development. And that sits to a degree in the small business development bucket. But it also sits, of course, in the Ambion teams through employment. How do you bring someone up through the organization from a star in training to a regional manager? And... We do a lot of that. We've been very successful in some places, less successful in others, and that remains a a constant focus for us. So it's those five areas, local employment, local training development, local procurement, local social infrastructure development, and local uh, small business development in the hustle economy. And as you can see, all of those have a local in front of them. So when we're talking shared value, it's driving it right out into the field where for every dollar you're taking from a guest, you're trying to leave as much as possible in the communities, around where your conservation efforts are being directed, because we know that, that community involvement is the key to long-term sustainability.
1: Okay. So, Josh, you came into this company that had this business model you felt could work, and yet it wasn't working. What were some of the changes or the refinements that you made to bring sustainability to the very core of of that business model and to make it work.
0: There were very wholesale changes because to really do this well is very, very hard. It takes a lot of time, as I found out. But to give you some examples, we had to integrate all of the marketing materials with the impact agenda materials and present those in a way that's exciting and interesting for guests so that they can really understand what that three C's model is that's sitting around them when they are in one of our lodges or camps. So if you go into one of the Ambion lodges now, you won't find your normal sort of hotel leather folder with the hairdryers here and the power you know, voltages here. What you'll find is a book, and it's an, hopefully an enticing book. And it's about people and it's about impact. And it's about the experiences you can have around you. And then interspersed in that is your normal information about the lodge. And in that book has the kind of community experiences. You can go out to see the conservation projects that you could get involved in, whether it's in field or when you get home. So you have to, you have to integrate everything together. And that, that's also in terms of the integration of the Africa Foundation and, and beyond, because they, they were run quite separately. Uh, and what was happening is you got guests saying, I really want to go visit this community project. So we go, great. So how are we going to get them there? Well, the vehicle isn't ready. It's you know he's uh, the Africa Foundation local manager. He's meeting with the with the tribal chiefs. He's not available, or the vehicle's available but the person isn't there, etc. So we made a big investment in vehicles and trained up the Africa Foundation team in order to do those guest visits, so that when we we could integrate it into the guest experience from start to finish, just as we would on a game drive or a, a night drive or game walk. The community piece became part of our hard offering. So we had to fully integrate everything. On the lodge investments and capital expenditure that goes into the lodges, we had to change all that too. So that full investment modeling of the sustainability design into new lodge projects or rebuilds. Before, it was always an afterthought. Right, we want to build a new camp. Let's design the tents. Let's design the the staff accommodation. Let's do all that. At the end, you go, oh, we need uh, renewable energy. Let's Let's put that in. By that point, <laughs> you've used up most of your budget. And so what was happening is all of the stuff we really wanted wasn't getting seen to. Now we do it completely the other way around. The models we build start with the impact credentials of that lodge. How is it going to be 90% solar renewable? How are we going to remove plastics from it? What's the water sources? What's the greywater uh, waste management plant going to look like? And that's the really the gritty, dirty side. Of having to invest in sustainability—it's not all great pictures. It's hard cash into things that guests don't see. After we've ticked those boxes, now we start to build a camp and a lodge on top of that, and that's when you—hopefully—some of the lodges you've seen us uh, launch in, in recent years reflect that for real in the, in the field. Looking forward, the forward strategy for the whole company is based on on what we call our scaling impact agenda, and that is looking out ten years to 2030 and even further and saying, what do we want to achieve from an impact perspective across those care of the land, wildlife, and people? Where do we think this model will work? Where do we think we can really have the most impact on biospheres, ecosystems by being there? And then we work back with a business strategy and a development strategy against the scaling impact agenda. So everything we have in our pipeline for development is is not because I, I go... I've gone to Patagonia and I think that's just a lovely place. Wouldn't it be nice to have a lodge there? We're going there because we think we have a considerable impact on many of the things that are in our impact review. And now we're working back to fill the gaps, to get the land, to get the lodges, to get the habitat teams on the ground, to get the community development teams on the ground to actually affect that
1: vision. So it's really been about taking that impact model and elevating it even more and just making it the heart of everything that we do.
0: Yes. But again, it's in the, in the detail of that. It's very easy to say that. I'm just underlining that. It's very easy to say, let's have a strategy. Yes. If you're the CEO of, of British Petroleum right now, it's very easy to say, well, we're going to have an, a, a non-oil strategy for BP. I, I don't know how big BP is, but it's massive. That <laughs> business has to pivot over a long period of time away from oil to yeah. renewable. To do that, huge amounts of investment, a real proper plan, how they're going to get there. And I guess Ambion in our own tiny way is no different. So so what I'm saying is, yes, we, we are driven by a scaling impact agenda that goes out a long time. But then we're working back the business strategy in lots of detail to say, how do we get there? And how do we use the experience of the last 30 years to make sure we don't make the same mistakes again? Because that's, that's madness. Einstein said the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over and expect a different outcome. Same applies to this business. Learn from the past. Innovate where possible and make sure your plan is very, very detailed as to how, how you're going to get there. Absolutely.
1: Now, just looking back over the past eight years since you first came in and looking at how far the company has come up until now, what would you think is one of your biggest successes during your time as CEO?
0: I've kind of covered why I took the job, how I put together the plan, and then we kind of watched and waited.
1: Mm.
0: <laughs> and to be totally frank, I had confidence it was going to work, but not full confidence. And I'm pretty sure if we had the Ambient Shales on this call, they would agree. It was a roll of the full dice. Mm -hmm. What's been most satisfying for me is that we really have, over the eight years from that start point, proven that Mm the sustainable impact model that we have built is real. It can be sustainably profitable. It is possible. Um, and there's not many examples of that around the world. So overall, that's the thing that's given me the most satisfaction is actually, uh, you know, linking back to 30 years ago, there was a it was a big idea and it was a vision well ahead of its time. And I think we've now done that justice. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of the people in Ambient who they've spent their entire careers trying to prove this point, mm-hmm. I know from from the senior team I work with, that's the thing that has really been their greatest piece of satisfaction too. So we think we've, We've worked the model, so that's one. I think some of the, the conservation projects mm-hmm. worked on have been really satisfying. So the Rhinos Without Borders project, where we moved eighty seven rhinos from South Africa to Botswana, and we, the progeny of those rhinos take them well over. I think we're over one hundred and twenty seven or one hundred and thirty now in Botswana as a new breeding pool of white rhino in the delta, it was immensely satisfying. And, and you could you could put that into the other projects like the ones we're doing in. Uh, On the marine side of things with oceans without borders those those projects are they're hard work like everything else but when they when they come right and you see the the outcomes that's tremendously satisfying uh and then most recently obviously the last 18 months has been you really really brutal uh, for the industry for the world for everyone and and beyond for uh, all of our communities and so obviously the most for me the biggest recent success is that we've, Touchwood made it through the worst. We've still got some way to go, but we've, we've made it through the worst without making any big restructuring in Ambion, nor making anyone redundant in the process. And so I think just trying to stick to the philosophy and the mission statement and the DNA of the company. And those are very, very difficult decisions for, for myself, especially for the shareholders. But I think when, when they are asked To defend the mission statement and the ethics of what they do they absolutely stood up and did it
1: you know you mentioned the satisfaction of seeing this model working how essential was it for the company to become profitable to that whole concept of sustainability can you really have sustainability without profitability
0: the answer is flat no it is absolutely essential and that's the hardest thing to try and prove you know the the commercial disciplines Must underpin the scaling impact long term strategy. Otherwise, the impact model is built on quicksand and is not sustainable. And whether you're an NGO who's constantly trying to raise money to keep everything afloat or a for profit that isn't quite deploying enough on the impact side to really make a difference, they're all connected. You've got a lot of projects that, on the face of it, luckily, there's some very wealthy people out there who want to fund these projects. But that is also. That's vague. That isn't sustainable either. So billionaire philanthropy has a place, but it's not sustainable. For the one person who has an interest, their progeny in third generation may have no interest at all. And that's what I mean by quicksand. And so in in my mind, the only way, proven way, is to generate enough profit to cover your bills, just as anyone in the world in terms of your household Mm -hmm. income has to do the same. So I think you know, in, in the sort of open houses and, and beyond, try and break down how the company does in terms of, of revenue and, and profit and cash. To to make it clear that it doesn't matter mm-hmm. whether you're running an organization this size or or even a smaller one, people seem to try to run away from the inescapable discipline that you can't spend more than you earn. None of us can. And this business is no different, uh, impact or not. So yes, that's a long answer to a short question. But in my mind, it's, it's critical to understanding this because I fight this question a lot. We eat what we kill commercially. And obviously, take that with a pinch of salt. Yeah. We're not out there killing anything. But, but I think you get the point. Lions can only eat what they hunt. What we hunt is revenue, good revenue, ethical revenue, in order to pay for all of our impact work. And uh, we've worked a plan that, that has covered that, that generates enough profit to put back into the organisation. To rebuild world class lodges, to expand, and to pay for uh, more and more impact work across the ecospheres we operate in and, and the associated communities.
1: Now, obviously, bringing a business as complex as End Beyond, or actually bringing any business to profit, is a really challenging task. Can you talk about some of the push and pull factors that were at work as you built up and Beyond to being profitable?
0: Yes, every day there's always a balancing act as to who wins that battle in that day. <laughs> there's only so much revenue and so much cash. But fundamentally, the the great push and pull factors are commercial disciplines versus preserving the guest experience is one big one. Dare I say it for all of the accountants who might be listening to this? Mm-hmm. If you always listen to the accountant, you're gonna you're gonna end up with a bad experience because <laughs> fundamentally, sometimes they don't understand what the the soft areas are required around guest experience. This balancing of commercial disciplines and guest experience is, is still ongoing. Even this week, I'm, I'm dealing with it. It never goes away. And you, you're having to navigate a channel of water where on one day, you're going to listen to the, to the accountants. On the next day, you're going to listen to your rangers and your lodge manager. He says, no, no, no. We, yes. We've got to do this right. We've got to do it for our guests. But what I do know is if, if you don't deliver for the guests, it doesn't matter. This whole model falls apart. So one is, one is that, is the commercial disciplines versus the, the overall preserving the guest experience. The other is the balancing the impact work and focus versus the other investments needed in all guest-facing lodges and experiences. So overall, CapEx is very high in these businesses. We call it the aircraft landing because once a lodge takes off and is active, it goes around in a circle and within 10 years, it needs to be brought back onto the runway to be rebuilt or refurbed. And there's no escaping it. Death, Mm -hmm. taxes, and large Mm -hmm. capex. (laughs) They go round and round, inevitable. And so there's always a push and pull on the use of cash against those requirements, against the the purpose requirements of the business. And obviously, we we do try and top up Mm -hmm. income on the purpose side from donations and charitable giving and, and corporations who want to help us. For the most part, 90% of our impact agenda is, is paid for internally within and beyond.
1: So we've spoken about the fact that profitability is essential to sustainability, but that comes over time. Does purpose or a business built around purpose necessarily mean having to sacrifice profit in the short term? And if so, how do you justify that? I mean, I know you've said that we've had incredibly committed shareholders who really embrace that sense of purpose and and beyond, but that's not the case for everybody. How do you convince shareholders to embrace a sense of purpose if it means that profit is going to come further along down the line?
0: That's a good question. I don't think you have to sacrifice profit in the long run. However, by its very nature, purpose investing, including sustainability elements of lodges and capex and vehicles is usually more upfront cash than downstream cash. So if you're a shareholder, what you're being asked to do is stump up more money early on for return further down the track. Most shareholders are relatively sophisticated investors, and they understand that. What they don't want to do is be told by a CEO like me, give me X more now, and I'll give you X return in five years time. Five years time, there's no return or less return than they would get somewhere else. So there comes the commercial disciplines to actually return them what you said they were going to return, and have done your due diligence enough to be able to understand the return on investment because the disciplines are equal across impact or for profit. So in a solar plant for a new lodge, that's usually a considerable investment, millions of dollars. You have to measure that against what you would be burning in generator fuel, forget all the carbon output, just, just pure cash in cash out, and you have to convince them that, please, Make this lodge 90% renewable or 100% renewable. It's going to cost us X million more up front, but you're going to get your money back in three and a half years. And after that, our costs are going to halve because you're not using generator fuel. You've got a carbon effective long-term lodge that sits within our impact agenda, and it's a good investment. And if you present that with them, and then in three years time, you actually take them back the numbers and show them that you did what you said they were going to do. Now you've got the confidence, just as you would with any public company, that they believe you. So I don't think you have to sacrifice it. You have to justify it and you have to prove it. They're, they're two different things. So if you make those decisions early on, what I have learned is that, in fact, through our experience, the more you focus on the strategy in terms of doing good, you will do extremely well financially. It doesn't feel like it at the time, but we've got numbers to prove it. It does work. You've clearly got to find the right shareholders who understand the first point I made from day one. And there has to be some patience because that isn't a one-year return. It's usually a three- to five-year return. So to give you a hard example, when we build a lodge and we build a financial model against that lodge that includes all of our impact agenda, all of our three Cs, all of our returns for guests and everything, I then take it to the shareholders and say, we want to build this one. We've got a live one now, Grometi River Tented Camp in Tanzania. We've just been through the process. Actually, that one's going to cost us a bit more than we thought. I had to go back to them and say, it's going to cost us more because of the renewable energy. I've told them what they're going to get out of that camp if we do it right in year three and year five. Because we have a track record now of eight years of going back Mm -hmm. over all of the prior projects and showing them a spreadsheet, I asked you for X, I said you'd get Y, and I actually delivered you Z. Mm. In all those cases, all have met the target or exceeded it. So now there's a confidence. Now when I say I really do need this, I believe in this project. It's not just me, the CEO, just saying that. They have all of that to look at and go, okay, this, this is a bet we're willing to take.
1: So there's that element of trust.
0: Yes, yeah. but you have to earn it.
1: Mm. So there's this really interesting balancing act. You know, you've spoken about having a plan for when a specific project becomes profitable. And yet on the other side, you have sustainability. And I think earlier in our conversation, you mentioned to be truly sustainable, you'd need a 100-year sustainability plan. How do you measure sustainability? Is there a guideline to the period of time? You know, are you looking at five years, 10 years, a lifetime? And how do you put measurements into place along the way? Through
0: the lens of and beyond, for the shareholder families, their intent is over the horizon. Can't put a number of years on it, but this is not some investment they want to, you know, be out of in, in three years, five years, 10 years. That's not how they view it. I think they view it as a generational investment that they really do want to try and leave the world a better place through their involvement in this company. So for the families, that's multi-generational. That goes out. And by default, you can yes. say that's 100 years. For me, the CEO, I don't want to get lost in the long weeds of anything that I don't think we can actually action. So in, in terms of how mm-hmm. we think about it, we are definitely thinking long term, 10 years, 15 years out in terms of where we're mm-hmm. trying to go. But the plan must be practical and measurable. So the actual plan we work against are rolling 10-year strategic impact plans. So we're now 2021. We started last year on building up our plan to 2030, which we now have. So we have the outline, mm-hmm. planks and platform and blueprint of what the 10-year plan looks like. We then actually have five-year milestone targets mm-hmm. on our journey to the 10-year plan. So that's the 2025 marker against the 2030 plan. We then have a three-year 2023 shorter term milestone targets that fall into the yes. planning of the business mm-hmm. alongside everything else. Where's the money going to come from? What does it look like? How do we pay for it? Who's going to deliver it? And then we have a one-year detailed hard budget that is built into mm-hmm. all of the forward plans for the business, which we do. You know, We've just entered our new financial year of what we call 2022, which takes us mm-hmm. to, to June 2022. So all of that is sitting within our budgets, we know what we can do, we know what we can't do, all of it building up to the three-year, five-year, 10-year plan.
1: Hmm. So there's a process that you do to reconcile the sustainability timeline with your financial models? 100%,
0: that's
1: correct. Okay. It must be incredibly complicated when you're working with things like communities, conservation and so many unknown variables.
0: It is. (laughs) It is. It's very, very complicated. But unless it's built into those high-level forecast process for the whole business, it's back to your earlier point on what's the structure versus a normal CSR-type organization. That high-level forecast, that embedded high-level forecast, is why this works. Because if it isn't, it's going to get left behind. Something will get left behind. And invariably, it's going to end up probably being the impact side of things while everyone moves on with everything else, which is why we integrate them. So as I said, for the business, we have a three- to five-year rolling high-level forecast. And we have a one-year hard budget, no different from our impact planning. And everything is in that. Your lodge capex, your impact revenue and expenditure, your projects that you're trying to do, expansion, that you're trying to do, everything around people, all sit within those high-level forecasts.
1: Now, you have touched on this a little bit before, but can you just go into a little bit more detail about how End Beyond goes about making sustainable choices? So, for example, things like building in sustainability into lodge rebuilds, solar power, things like that. What are the hard business principles that you use to guide those decisions? As I said before, we we set those overall
0: impact targets. Let's just stick to the five-year view. Obviously, you've got a 2030 plan, and then you bring that back to 2025, then the 2023, and back to to this year, which is 2022. So we set the overall impact targets that sit within that five-year high-level forecast. So yesterday, the CFO and I were on a call with the shareholders. On that presentation isn't okay. Let's talk about the business, and then let's talk about impact in terms of capital expenditure. You know, what do we need to pay for, and, and how's it going to work? They're all buried in the same thing. So, so mm-hmm. that's where those hard choices and the trade-offs start to have to be made. We mm-hmm. have our lodge investment plans, and as I explained for the likes of Grametti, you have to do full due diligence on the renewable yes. energy versus grid power needed, and what the return on investment's going to be on that. Same for vehicles. We've started to trial uh, electric vehicles. We've trialed six, I think, so far. We still haven't got the right answer yet. So it is trial and error. But if you, if you don't try, you don't succeed. So we do a lot of, of trialing mm-hmm. of things before we roll out that went for all of our plastic eradication across the group as well. You know, We started putting water bottling plants into our lodges well before the whole plastic revolution mm-hmm. had started. And we, we learned a lot of lessons. We yes. had to build three down in South Africa mm-hmm. first and test them. Did the model actually work? Mm-hmm. When we said we're going to spend $80,000 on a water bottling plant, within 12 months, what happened? And we used that knowledge to then change things for when we rolled it into Kenya or Tanzania. Uh, we then rolled it into Chile in, in uh, Vera Vera, which is our lodge in Chile. Yes. You ramp up the learnings from early experiments is one way to do it, and that's how you make the hard mm-hmm. choices on what you do or don't do. So the business principles that underlie those decisions are driven by doing things right. As we get into the hard realities of climate change, this is just going to get more important. So the early investments, as I said, in water treatment. So we just built a brand new lodge Mm -hmm. in the Namibian desert. We spend an inordinate amount of time on water, clearly, because you're in a desert, not rocket science. How do we deal with that? We want to put swimming pools in. How do we make sure there's not uh, too much evaporation? How do we recycle water across the units? How do we use any remaining great water that comes out of the system? How is that put to use, etc.? cetera? And then being in a desert that gets up to 52 degrees centigrade in the summer, guests want air conditioning, that's energy, yes. that means more renewable energy. Those are all the hard trade-offs. And, and back to this, if the money guys won the whole time, you wouldn't invest sometimes in these things. If the guests won all the time, mm-hmm. you'd never make enough money. If the Lodge teams won all the time, they'd get everything they want, but at the expense of the teams and the officers who are handling mm. the files, etc. It is a bit of a minefield to, to do the trade-offs, but I think as a sort of mm. true north guidance, if yes. you know the direction you're trying to go in is the right thing to do, that makes things a lot easier. And that's driven by that 10, 15-year impact strategy.
1: Mm. Absolutely. Joss, you know, there's so much more awareness about sustainability at the moment and so many more companies wanting to build their own business models around that. Is there any advice that, that you'd give to them about how to bridge the gap between sustainability and business?
0: Absolutely. Get rid of the gap. I mean, that's the point. The gap between sustainability and business, there they can't be.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We can't afford the gap. The gap is what's got us in trouble. The gap is what's got us into overtourism. Yes. The gap is what's got us into... Uh, losing 67% of our species in the last 20 years. The gap is in wildfires Mm. in Texas, Australia, Greece, Botswana. The gap is the problem. Mm. Sustainability has to be fully integrated into the business using the same commercial disciplines that you would apply to any other thing you do in your life. As a person, when you go buy a car, Mm. or you're trying to get a bond or a mortgage for a house, Mm. you do your due diligence. You check the prices, where's the money going to come from? What do I get for this? If I'm going for an electric vehicle, what does that mean? You sit at your kitchen table and you work it out. It's going to cost me more. But over time, I'm actually going to get less costs of fuel. And overall, I'm doing the right thing because I realize the impact of fossil fuel burning. You've got to be the head firmly under a rock not to be aware of of the impact of everything around the world. No difference to a small business or to a bigger one like, like Ambion in our space. Close the gap sustainability and business are one it's good business if you think about it right and you do it right and if you if you aim at doing the right thing you will do well so get rid of the gap build a strategy around it involving the people and the culture around that single principle and you will do just fine you will do just fine and back to the covid thing i think there's no better example of when when the chips are really down this gap between sustainability and business, if there was a gap between those two in and beyond, that decision point would have been much more treacherous because it would have been led by business. It would have been led by cash. And it's not to say we didn't take all those things on board when we make our decisions. We were ruthless in terms of cost cutting, ruthless in terms of how we were going to deal with this. But I guess in all those discussions, it came back to the integrated nature of sustainability into the business that made us really question what decisions we are taking and what impact they would have. And back to the title, I think, of of this talk is is what happens when profit meets purpose in a dark alley. I distinctly remember the shareholder call where we made that decision, which was this is the moment where you as shareholders have to make the decision. Me as a CEO have to put forward my views. And it was in that call that it was unequivocal. That yes. the long-term impact of the business had to take precedent over short-term, absolute business-driven commercial, normal commercial views, but that if we did it right and we involved as much of the team in the decision-making, mm. we could end up in the same or better place by making the hardest decision mm. now. And I'm well aware of all of the, the sacrifices of everyone in Ambion and the whole industry over the last 18 months. So I'm not saying it's a perfect situation. But I look back now and say, is that a better outcome in terms of long-term impact? 100%, Mm -hmm. it is.
1: So I think part of what I've heard you saying is that actually sustainability is good for business in so many different ways.
0: Totally good for business. In fact, it's the way to have a great business. Start with it, do what's right, invest where you need to, and you will reap not just long-term financial returns, but you'll reap a whole bunch of other successes along the way. And if you don't do it, you're not going to survive in today's world. I just, I just don't see it. Anyone who thinks these things can be separated is, is wrong.
1: In very practical terms, do you have any advice that you can offer business owners who want to align profit and purpose, especially in the business environment that is current at the moment, or for those who are trying to set sustainable development goals?
0: Yes, I think um, do your homework first in terms of, of looking at best-in-class companies in this field that you're in. You know, what are they doing? What have they learned? How much are they sharing? You can look at uh, charities and NGOs. You can look at publicly listed companies who are all moving in this direction, all have to publish a whole bunch of information and learn from them what's worked, what doesn't, or what resonates with you for the business owner. What are you, what are you trying to achieve? What do you want as a legacy for your, for your business? The UN Sustainable Development Goals are a really good framework to use. They don't apply to everything, but we've used them really well to sort of frame our thinking. And I would highly recommend that's a great starting point. And so those 20, 30 goals that we've set are all aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Mm -hmm. And that makes life easy to frame the thinking. As I think we've covered ad nauseum, make your business plan fully integrated from day one. Get rid of the gap. It's the only way you'll stay true to the course, make the right business decisions, etc. Then be clear of your financial modeling and the trade-offs inherent that you are going to have to make as you navigate your way through your plan. So those would be my my four points.
1: Joss, you've referred quite a few times to COVID and the effects that it's had on Ambion in terms of testing the company's values in a way. Is there anything that you'd like to add about any of the trade-offs that had to be made or you know what were the things that you really saw as non-negotiable that you were able to continue doing as a company in spite of COVID?
0: COVID, of course, is a sort of damascene moment, not just for Ambion, but for the whole industry. It absolutely piercingly went to the heart of the mission statement of the company and its core values. As I said, I, I like to think we made the right decisions. Clearly, one of those hard questions is, do you pursue a, a full retention plan with salary reductions versus a very harsh restructuring of the business? We chose the former. A lot of the industry chose the latter. And when we're talking harsh restructuring, we're talking 50 to 70% of staff were let go within two months of COVID hitting. It was brutal. And so those are the trade-offs we've, we've had to think through and make. What we haven't had to think about is really on the care of the land or the care of the people side of things outside of the, the ambient business decisions. You know, we've effectively nearly doubled the emergency relief efforts into mm-hmm. the surrounding communities. Yes. We raised a bunch of money to accelerate it to, to a degree. We're like running the UN World Food Programme for a while. Still are, because that's the harsh end of this thing. That's the, the real cost of COVID. The two real costs of COVID are there's people dying. We've got ambience who have lost their lives, long term ambionders to COVID. You know, that is the sharp end of this. You've got communities who can't eat, you've got medical facilities that can't cope. So the non-negotiable for us was that we don't sit mm-hmm. around and, and don't do anything. In fact, we doubled down. Led by the Africa Foundation and the teams in the field, they absolutely demanded it and they were right to. In fact, I remember early yeah early meetings once the the crisis had hit. Rightly, I think the Africa Foundation team is frustrated. We've got to move faster, Joss, thumping the table. You know, really upset. And they were right. So those are the non-negotiables. We haven't left any of our land. We've continued to, to do all of our sort of conservation work across the land under our influence or management. We haven't walked away from any concessions, any payments to any small business holders. We paid prepaid commissions to travel agents to try and keep them in business upstream. So the non-negotiables for us were anything mm-hmm. that, to be frank, yes. that I felt meant I couldn't sleep well at night, knowing that was not the right thing to do, we did not do. And luckily, it had the full support of our exec team and shareholders to make those decisions. But all those are difficult decisions.
1: Definitely, they are. In that context, Joss, how do you believe that the sense of purpose that Beyond has has made the business more resilient?
0: I think purpose for employees has incalculable value. I think it's what drives people. I think it's what gets them up in the morning. It's what takes them the extra mile. Resilience is all about people because everything else can get blown over. Our lodges get flattened all the time. (laughs) Wildfire, elephant walking through them, wind, rivers washing them away, islands that shift. If you you think you're going to stop nature by building something, that's not resilience. The resilience comes through the people. I think purpose does make you more resilient. And I can, I can see it. For me, when you navigate all the complexity we've talked about, for everyone, that gets tiring. And when you sometimes feel like giving up because you're like, God, that's, this is really hard work. It's always at that point that I get on a plane trying to go into one of our lodges or reserves and spend a few days in the communities with the staff. You come out the other end different. You suddenly remember, damn, that's, that's what it's all about. You know, you've got energy in the tank again, going, gee, okay, let's fix that problem. So for me, that's it. I think purpose makes the business much more resilient at every turn.
1: Mm. To end off with, can you give us a little bit of insight into what's next for and beyond? Has the COVID crisis changed or affected your vision for the future of the company?
0: No, in fact, quite the opposite. I think it's causing us to double down on our plans. may take longer Mm -hmm. to get there because we're not devoid of the impact of all this. And so it does slow down some of it, but in terms of intent and our scaling impact ambitions, in fact, they scaled up. And by that, I mean, COVID's done us a favor, done us lots of damage, done us a huge favor. It's accelerated the whole global thinking about sustainability, about how we travel the world, about what we're actually doing about climate change. What are we doing to these ecospheres? what's happening to wildlife, mm. renewable energy, the small things, the way we live our lives, yes. what, is, what is truly sustainable mm. for us, this whole move towards traveling with purpose. Mm. All of those things, we've been banging that drum for years. Mm. <laughs> uh, sometimes you just want to bang your head against the door, saying, is anyone, is anyone really listening out there? I know from guest feedback mm. that, that when we hit Nirvana, when we get a guest in and they get it, the three Cs, With a great experience, you can taste it in their email. And you go, that is it. That person got it. And to a degree, we wouldn't have grown as fast as we've grown if we weren't really delivering on that. But it sometimes did feel like you were shouting into the wind Mm. a bit. We're not anymore. COVID has done us a massive favor and we'd better take advantage of it. Absolutely. My view is our mission Mm. statement is Mm. more valuable than ever, more defendable than ever. Our plans are more sellable than ever. And by that, I mean, again, back to the commercial disciplines. Do I have full ambition to mm-hmm. to, to build more lodges and camps and, and take on more land in Asia, South America, and Africa in order to scale our impact ambition to 50 million acres, which is what we want to do? 100% I do. Do I think there's people who mm-hmm. will come visit and learn from us? Yes, there are. Is the role of Ambeyond as a change agent to try mm-hmm. and leave the world a better place through what we do as important as ever? way more important. So I think there's, there's some real energy from this crisis. Do not waste the crisis. The next 10 years is going to be really important. And I think we've got a big part to play in it. Mm -hmm. So we're doubling down and we're going to go for it.
1: Wonderful. That's really encouraging to hear. Joss, I think those topics that you've touched on, the increasing move towards sustainability and the whole outlook towards nature, really something that I'd love to explore with you in more detail. I'm hoping that we get a chance to do another interview on that. But for now, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you.
0: You're absolutely welcome.
1: Thank you for listening to Leave Our World A Better Place. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. If you'd like to find out more about and beyond, please log on to our website at andbeyond.com.